Hello and welcome to episode 8 of The Wind Thieved Hat. One of the things I've enjoyed about making this podcast is that each of my conversations with artists, writers, designers, makers has a very different flavour, a different character. And this week's episode is perhaps one of the more cerebral conversations I've had. It's with Adam Nathaniel Furman. He's an artist, he's a designer and he has a background in architecture. This year I've been working on a project with ITV, the TV channel. Each week they have a different artist create an artwork based on their logo. 52 different artists over the course of a year. Adam was one of those artists and I remember the day he came into the studio, it was this cacophony of colour and positivity and good vibes. He's, he's a super interesting bloke. I, I hope you enjoy our conversation. It begins with us talking about his profound dyslexia, which was, which was difficult for him uh, to begin with, but it's something he overcame. We talk about how Adam traverses time and space to create work which delights in its own ornament. And we also discuss dumplings. That's right, dumplings, as an example of transnational fluidity quite what that means you will find out sit back relax and enjoy this week's episode of the wind thieved hat so i would like to begin with a quote if i may Mm -hmm. I've um, spent the last couple of days delving deep into your online archive, um, if that doesn't sound too weird, um, and I have unearthed this little quote from the text to historical promiscuities. Yes, which is um, which yeah we can see before us now <laughs> a, a very recent work. Uh, last year, yeah. Are you ready? Yes. For me to quote back something, you look <laughs> a bit worried, but don't, don't worry, it's okay. We are desperately hungry, even if we don't realise it. We've been fed on a starvation diet of mean, thin gruel, without colour, without ornament, with no sugar, no spice, no history, no illusion, no banquets, no feasts, no lovemaking, no carnival, no lustre, no bodies, just bread, a knife and water. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a bit dramatic. I love it. Yeah. Um, uh, No, I I read that and I thought, wow. um, in the context of your work, it seems as if you are on a bit of a one-man mission to um, to assuage our, our hunger. Yeah, um, the food metaphor comes up a lot for me, or analogy, um, because you know, you know, there's that th- that thing where people um, say that they can um, hear, or when they sort of see things, they can hear sounds. There's this uh, synesthesia; it's like a linking yes. between the senses. Now, when I look at things, I really uh, feel it in my mouth and my stomach. Like, it's, it's really like eating. <clears throat> and so that's a, that's a very visceral thing for me. Like, wow. it really actually, it's not just a sort of linguistic trick. Yes. Um, so when I go into sort of fantastic buildings, when I was young, I go into fantastic buildings, it literally fills me up like an amazing meal. Uh, and I love food. I'm a terrible chef, and I love eating. Um, <laughs> but I'm good. I'm sort of not good. I mean, I can design. So <laughs> I'm allowed to, I can cook with with colour um, so genuinely like when I actually do use colour when I do design it's literally like cooking it's like laying out an amazing feast yes um, so that sort of metaphor means quite a lot to me and I do try and feed people 
<laughs> as colour. much as possible with colour and pattern and ornament. Lovely. So t- tell us a little bit about your, your background in, in, in growing up. So you, you are of Argentinian, Israeli and Japanese heritage. Yeah, I so, but I'm, I'm a Londoner. So I, I, I was born and brought up in London, uh, first generation. Um, my parents came in the late 70s um, from Israel where they met. Um, and my father is from Argentina um, and sort of his family is all from there. Um, and my mother is from Japan. Um, but she's she's um, sort of the child of a local and uh, a German refugee. So my gra- my grandfather on that side was a Jew from Munich. And obviously, it wasn't a great place to be. And he managed yeah. to escape and somehow made his way to Japan, um, where he got my great grandfather's daughter pregnant. <laughs> and uh, and the family hid him during the war, and they okay. started having children. Right then, so. Um, uh, but they met in Israel, my parents, and then came out, came over here. I see. Uh, and um, when you were growing up as a kid, were you, um, were you, did you show that you might become a designer, or were, were there, were you, yeah, <laughs> you were drawing things, and making things? Yeah, I mean, I, I had, I had really uh, pronounced uh, learning dif- dis- difficulties. Yeah, right, not to say disabilities. Um, so I had, I really terrible difficulty reading and writing and then extremely slow at learning and just I, school was very difficult um, but really loved like my parents always make the joke that like I couldn't do my homework or anything I couldn't you know I didn't understand the alphabet but like you could give me a piece of paper and a pen and scissors and tape, and like I'd be happy all day so I was drawing already since I was very very little um, and it was like a happy space yeah it was a happy place yeah um, and you know, kids they they find their yeah. you know, particularly if they're finding other things difficult, they they find yeah. a space which they enjoy, and it becomes very important. And yes. it's remained my happy space, yeah, yeah, yeah. always since then. Yeah. And so it must have been quite tough then, because school, school is very much geared around the other stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I can I can look back and I say it was tough, but at the same time, it was also I was immensely lucky. So I'm from a privileged background. My parents are both successful professionals, um, so there was that. So I was in a school that. You know, these weren't days when there was a lot of there wasn't support for kids. So, with really bad dyslexia, it wasn't really known. Um, but my parents had means, and my mother, amazing woman that she is, she and my grandfather as well were kind of. We now know we're undiagnosed dyslexics. So she recognised in me that the same difficulties that she had when she was a child, um, and refused to take the answers that were being given to her. And she sort of took me around and. Um, found um, support for me. So actually, because of her, I did get support external to the schools. Um, and, you know, she had both the means to do that and also she had the personality to do that. So I was immensely lucky. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, if that hadn't have happened, I really don't know what would have happened yeah. to me. And I, and I and that's why it's, it's a subject that means, you know, it's close to my heart because I experienced it and I see kids at university who are sort of, who have difficulties that haven't been helped and you know it's really it's it's something that i'm amazed that anyone manages mm. to make it through without mm. support mm. it's easy to be cowed i think isn't it by your 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 inabilities at school if if if, if you're if you're not helped yeah well i mean if 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 you're if you can't do stuff if you're really slow at things but you're you're also not stupid so your brain's functioning at you know relatively high level but you're being told you're stupid or you feel very stupid. You get frustrated, you get angry, 
um, your energy and your intellectual ability come out in really bad wrong ways. Um, and you get pr qu pretty quickly get not only left behind but actively pushed pushed to the side and mm. marginalized. Mm. Um, and you know even despite you know even with all of the help that I got and my you know my mother always standing behind me, I was still in you know complete chaos at school. <laughs> you know I got I got kicked out in the end. I, I, I sort of feel with this episode of my podcast more than any other, um, I may be in the wrong format because <laughs> the podcast is an audio. Thing. Yes, and yours is a oh, world yeah. of astonishing colour. Really, <laughs> we know, can conjure I, it up with words. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let, let's have a go. Because I, I remember uh, meeting you. Uh, we we did the project recently for ITV. ITV for this year has undertaken a project where each week their identities is uh, given over to a different artist or designer, which is bonkers. Which is an amazing project. <laughs> so cool. Full credit to them uh, for doing it and I remember you walking into the studio and um, uh, you were this sort of um, I think it was quite an overcast day you were this cold. sort of cloud of kind of <laughs> colour <laughs> scarves and you know running trainers and, and gloves and, and gloves and, and, and glasses and, 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 and um, why, why is colour so important to you? Um, it it makes me happy <laughs> it, so I mean just generally ob objects and ornaments um, and visual stimuli have always been uh, very calming for me. Um, as sort of as I mentioned, like you know, as we were just discussing before, you know, if you're if you're sort of going through life and you find lots of things difficult, and you know, you don't like sports and you don't get on with a lot of people, and maybe you're not cool at school, and you know, you're fat or whatever. <laughs> like you're that you find things that you can focus on, and they become yours, and that you really enjoy. And for me, there were just very, you know, pretty and beautiful things that I could just look at and that would sort of calm my mind down and take me out of myself. Um, and and colour was just a really big part of that. Like, I just enjoyed staring at colours. Right. <laughs> um, and eating up colours. Yeah, just staring yeah. at it. And it was very, very calming. And it starts, I think it started off, like, with my grandmother in nature. You know, she still today, she... she as I just mentioned to you earlier, she can quite happily sit in the park all day and just look at the, the leaves kind of rustling in the wind and look at the flowers. And, and she can talk about it and sort of share her appreciation, appreciation of it. Um, and, you know, I got the same thing. And then that would, ex that would extend to being inside buildings, um, looking at paintings, the TV. So, like, TV was also something that I really, really enjoyed. So, uh, but not necessarily watching content, but just, like, the screen. <laughs> Just so, like, right. sometimes I'd, I'd stand outside my, my dad's room and the TV would be on because I wasn't allowed to watch it. <clears throat> you know, he was rationing it because TV was very bad. Yeah. Um, and I just look at the screen and I wouldn't really know what was going on. It was just yeah. sort of this like moving image right. <laughs> that was just gorgeous. Yes. Um, and similarly, my brother would play computer games. So I didn't have a computer console, um, but my, my brother did. And he wouldn't allow me to play. Which was fine because, to be honest, I was so not—I was so rubbish. I could never actually play, but I could watch from a distance. Yeah. Um, and it became like moving paintings. <laughs> okay. So I remember, like, particularly like Nintendo sixty-four, Mario sixty-four, yeah. something. I just lit, every time I heard that Mario sixty-four was being played, I'd run upstairs and just watch. Right. Um, and the colours and the shapes yeah. um, was like the most amazing living paintings. Wow. Um, yeah, it's just it's a calming, enjoyable thing always for me. Yeah, that's uh, kind of sustenance quite young. There for you. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit like I, what I found. So when I got a lot of support with reading, 
and writing and later on I sort of now write that the the written word is super important to me now I love it uh, uh, poetry became something that I learned to love it was impenetrable before but I think a lot of what I get from now from reading poetry is what I got very early on without training from looking at <coughs> color and ornament the way that you can convey quite a lot of depth in an ambiguous manner that's uh, that works as an impression rather than as, a, as an intellectual element item because you can give an you know you can give a talk and you can write an essay but you can give all of that content over in like a haiku <laughs> yeah or in an atmospheric environment yes um, and so I tend to like with my with my students or when I'm talking about my work I sort of like to say that it's not it's not anti-intellectual at all like there's a lot of research and there's a lot of ideas behind it but I don't want to belabor that point and I don't want people to have to read essays to understand it so I try and in the same way that there's a lot of intellect behind a W.H. Auden poem but it works on in, an instinctual atmospheric level yeah. right I try and do the same thing like with colour and yes. art and design yeah Colour, different colours have a different sort of emotional character, don't they? And, and, and different weight and associations, just like words do. Yes, for different, and they're just uh, as ambiguous. For different people, they mean yeah. different things in different combinations, in different That's contexts. Right. They can be taken in different ways. So it's yeah. a, ter- a terribly slippery thing. Yeah. And yet it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you're, one of the things that I, I think is great about you um, is, is, is that you are not afraid to um, provoke a little. Uh, which is good because we need people to shake things up a bit. And um, you were, um, I watched a lecture that you'd done and um, one of the interesting things that you were talking about is how in the world of architecture and design, colour is looked upon as kind of frivolous, as as not serious. Mm. Um, and uh, sometimes it's gendered as well, you know, colour is female and lighter and more... Superficial, it's More makeup. superficial and, yeah. and, 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 and this kind of thing. One of the side effects of modernist dogma of the most superficial kind, because obviously modernism was a wildly exciting thing, included lots of colour and ornament and decoration and ambiguity in poetry. But like it, the, the 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 followers in the nineteen forties, fifties, and sixties kind of lost that and just turned it into a sort of dogma of structure, diagram, function, white, pure. Which it wasn't really at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and that dogma has sort of calcified and actually become stronger and stronger over the years and turned into these very short aphorisms that people follow mm. that don't really have any meaning anymore and yet they stick yeah. to them. And white is seen as some sort of neutral ground, which is rubbish. It's not a new, it's the most aggressive colour that you can possibly get. Um, it's, there's nothing neutral about it whatsoever. It's the most aggressive colour. Yeah, I mean, I really like white, but it's, yeah. I mean, look at my glasses. Yeah. I mean, they're incredibly loud. Yes. It's a very, very strong colour. It's, it's a very hard one to achieve in nature as well. The, the fear of colour goes back very, very far. There's an amazing book by Jacqueline Lichtenstein called The Eloquence of Colour, classical painting in France. And actually she draws a line that goes all the way back to uh, ancient Rome with Cicero. Um, and the the fight or the discussion then between the rhetoricians, so they're the people who had the art of rhetoric and discussing in politics and convincing audiences and crowds, which is very different to philosophy. And the philosophers who were like all about the ideas and about the, ex- the sort of explanation very clearly of rational rationality and logic, they were kind of opposed. And the rhetoricians were always frowned upon uh, as being illogical, irrational, dangerous, ruled by the emotions. It's all about, it's all about undermining the intellect in the, in the audience. So they yeah. were, they were, they were opposed to the philosophers who were said we're serious yeah we're only about ideas we're right. not about emotion yes 
And she traces that, that same tendency that runs through um, disegno and colore in, uh, in, ancient, uh, in, in Renaissance Florence and um, Venice, where the, color, the colorists in Venice were all about impression. It's how you really, you really see the world, right? The sort of yeah. blurry boundaries of attrition. Yeah. Um, and the Florentines, the disegno, which is all about the real abstract forms of shapes in space defined mathematically in perspectival geometry of intellectual forms, okay? It was not about the impression of space. Right. And then she goes to the French, uh, and similarly, colour uh, in, you know, Poussin in the Academy, um, the colour was always something that must be controlled because it's it's something which undermines the intellect. It's like a painted lady, you know, it gives you an erection and it'll, <laughs> it'll uh, you know, your, your, your mind will be overtaken by lust. Yeah. Um, and so actually there's a very long tra- train of th- thread of thought and oppositions that led up to modernism, framing it for architecture and design in extremely tight um, kind of uh, dictums that are difficult to escape from because mm. they sort of tie into this sort of deep fear of mm. lust and mm. irrationality that, mm. that we've tied to colour. Yeah. Or, you know, for instance, in movies, there's the same sort of thing. They're, you know, if a movie makes people cry and it works... Uh, on the emotions too much somehow it's always rejected as I oh, know that's just it's too emotional it's like yeah. rubbish it can't be serious you yeah. know it has to be Brechtian everything yes. has to have have to have intellectual distance yes for you to be able to see yeah. it as serious yes it's got to be a tough watch yeah, yeah. yeah exactly um, and so actually you can see the same thing occur through lots of different mediums you know the discussion of Will Self always wanting every book to be really fucking dif- oh sorry re- <laughs> really funny. difficult yeah to read otherwise it's not serious and he makes yeah. his books Totally impenetrable. Yeah. yeah. Um, because yeah. that's serious intellectual yes. man's work. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, particular, the particular tangle in architecture and design related to an absence of colour yeah. is one outcome, something that's really broad, but it's, I think, the most pernicious and difficult to escape from yeah. of all of the different professions. Yes. Yeah. Did that make sense? It, do, sense? Yeah, no, yeah. It, it totally makes sense. And, and it's, it's one of those things that until you point it out, you just you're not kind of aware of it, are you? You know, it's just it's like this is the way things are. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose you, with your particular appetite for colour and sustenance, maybe is is is, is more aware of it. Well, I've been forced to be aware of it, so yeah. I, I wouldn't. If I was, if I had just been allowed to do what I wanted to do and enjoy it, mm. uh, I wouldn't have been aware of all of this. But it's the fact that I've been consistently trying, you know, all through my education and after, it, there's been a consistent attempt to like say, no, you can't do this. Mm. Why are you doing that? Don't do that. That's awful. And then the aggression has actually got quite sort of stronger, if anything, has sort of mm. gone out into the world. And so one, if one does something that is, makes people react in such a strong and negative way, you have to learn the background to it to be able to answer back. Mm. So it's a necessity, mm. in, a, <clears throat> in a way. Mm. Picasso famously said, good artists copy and great artists steal. <laughs> and I think there is an incredible amount of appropriation should we call it, uh-huh. in your work, and, and reinvention. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I, so my position on it is that history is dead unless you use it. And so the way of, the best way to uh, to appreciate it and respect it is to not, people use the word like abuse and mis- misinterpret, but like I actually think it's just um, transforming it, like giving it children, you know, interbreeding it, interbreeding different kind of material from different parts in history. Um, it it honours that particular time in history. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I guess my approach uh, quite often gets sort of misconstrued as being sort of like a cynical use of imagery. 
Um, but like I have, whenever I use something, like I have great respect for the context in which it comes from. Like, and I'm a massive history geek, so I really love, you know, and I've written and I write plenty on architectural history, particularly. Mm. Um, so I have great respect from the context of where they come from, and I understand what I'm using. But at the same time, it, it's a little bit like an artist to be able to be a naive, naive artist. The artists very often will feel that they actually have to be extremely good academic artists, and then they can let go mm-hmm. to, um, to be sort of an informed adult child and similarly like to be able to use historical material in an extremely free manner um i do take that material really seriously and study it and then really like (laughs) and not follow any rules yeah um and create new contexts so there was a sort of there was a lot of critique in the sort of 1980s i think there was a lot of cynical reuse of historical material because you know postmodernism made the use of historical material so popular that a lot of sort of quite bad practitioners were using it Um, but there was a critique saying okay you know those those historical forms are just being taken as empty signs and just mixed up with no meaning but but rather what i think is that when you and this is the way it was i think in in most of architectural history, again, until sort of modernism sort of created this false break with the past. But you take material and when you recombine them and you transform them, you're creating something new with specific meaning in the now. So you're creating a new context and new meaning based upon those elements. So it's not a cynical act of something devoid of meaning. It's something yeah. that's a new context. Yes, absolutely. And, and that, that's Picasso's point, isn't it? I think that, that the difference between copying and stealing is that when you steal something... You take you own it, it and you make you it your own. It. Yeah. Sorry, it, to come back to come back to the eating thing, it's yeah. like a kind of yeah, it's like you, you metabolize it. Yes. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you take it round and back at school and devour it. Let's move from history to, to place now, to space. Yes. Yeah. Um and um, I can't remember where I got this from. Uh, but you said, imagine a Thai business lady and an Italian backpacker spending a long, exciting, passionate and drug fueled night together in a Chinese club. Well, these pieces are the embodiment of this kind of wonderful, sensual and aesthetic transcontinental exchange. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, um, and what I thought was was, was that's, re- that's for furniture. It was that, it was that, that was the furniture. Can you imagine it? if I got yeah. given a nightclub to do? What, <laughs> yeah. what would happen? Yeah. You should do the IKEA catalogue. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so, what, what, what's, it, what's interesting about this idea at the moment that we can that we can draw um, as we like from from these different places, sort of globally, is that. We live in we live in we live in an era where there are strong forces at work that would that, that are very much anti that that that, that would um, you know it, we, it's Brexit is the conversation at the moment isn't there and there's this terrible sort of undercurrent of xenophobia and fearfulness mm-hmm. um, yeah but there's also I mean, so that's on the right but there's also on the left so you know the left the left there's a, the kind of big discussion of cultural appropriation um, but also there's a kind of um, the dogma of localism and things must be from nearby and everything designs must refer to something that the designer knows intimately and is from in terms of their background right Um, so that there's a kind of double dogma from both sides the right and the left that trap us in in our immediate environments Mm. that you, I'm not you, very this, happy this with. Sort of, you mean this sort of like local is good and, and the, the, the stone for the building must have come from sort of the quarry nearby. And, yeah, but, and uh, kind of so there's that and there's also as a, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're a particular designer, somehow it must, the designs must come also from the background of your understanding and that you can only understand things that are from your personal experience, um, which I find 
quite problematic. Um, so yeah, that, that just there are just generally from many different directions, from the xenophobes, the nationalists, uh, to sort of you know well-meaning localists. There just there's a, a compounded feeling that our horizons have shrunk, mm. um, which for me is you know it's fine if people want to do that. But like in terms of what I love about ornament and what I love about design, it's the opposite. You know, I love ornaments so much. I mean, you've saw the lecture, but I love ornaments so much because it is literally, along with food, it's the very definition of transnational fluidity embodied in aesthetics. Say that again. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's unpack that a bit. So ornament is the very embodiment of transnational fluidity, fluidity. embedded in aesthetics. Yes. What do you mean? So um, so f- I, I, food, food is probably like the quickest example, um, yeah. but ornament functions in a very similar way as uh, cultural units that transform and move, be- move between societies. So like dumplings, dumplings move <laughs> from country to country and yes. they have endless variety and variation. It's almost, almost impossible to tell where they started and where they come from, yeah. but there's, they sort of bifurcate from region and region to yeah. city to city and yet yes. they're all connected. Yes, and there, there's many different ingredients that this occurs with and you know you've got Jewish fried fish from Portugal that was meant to last for an ex, you know for one day over the sabbath from the sixth, from the 15th century and migrated to Japan and became uh, tempura which is called tempura because that's from the portuguese word of tempo which was the word for fish for the friday from the jews in the 16th century but that then came over in the 19th century to england combined with Irish immigrants who were living in the same area as the new Jewish immigrants who brought potatoes with the Jews who brought their fried fish and became fish and chips. And so, you know, and those are fundamental, fundamental identity, elements of identity for Portugal, Japan and the United Kingdom. And yet it's all sort of connected. And so um, ornament functions in a very similar, probably even faster way, Maybe, but um, you have uh, forms that, that sort of move without respect to religion, creed, ethnicity or culture um, between countries. And you can pick almost any motif and have the most wild journey with it. So, I mean, you know, if you take um, uh, scroll work from Rome, um, yeah. so it's like first century BC Rome, uh, the sort of co- the complicated vegetal forms that, that scroll. Yes. You know, that then turned into Celtic Celtic motifs of scrolling, right. which then turned into Arabic motifs of scrolling, which then went over to, to India and China and started to evolve into a certain type of chinoiserie motif, and then to Japan, and then to Indonesia, and then came back to Europe in the sort of 18th century as well, and sort of like re-influenced. Fantastic. Um, Paisley began in, in the borders between, I think, I think Iran, Iran or Kashmir. I'm not sure where it started, but within 100 years, it was like the national pattern with endless variations of several countries. Um, anyway, this, there's a lot of different examples, yeah. um, but ornament is a unifier, and it's a it's sort of really wonderful way of showing how cultures it's not steal, but they sort of they share, they change, they transform, and identity can be singular and different at the same time connected, mm-hmm. um, and things can be mixed and matched and changed from wildly unexpected sources, and yet become local, and then again become international. Mm. So you, you have an online shop, and um, if people have been looking for um, a blush pink baseball cap with sky blue text that says ornament is sublime, but they've not yet been able to find it, they just need to um, visit... Um, I your... think my things are too niche. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I'm tempted. Um, um, but let's talk a bit more about ornament, because you know, it's interesting. One of the things I, I when I'm teaching my creative workshops, 
I um, one of the uh, things I talk about is the importance in the creative process of stripping stuff away, and um, I show a series of lithographs that Picasso did of a bull. I'm not sure if you've seen these. There are eleven bulls that he did over a, a period. Um, I, abs- I love his ceramic bulls. I mean the. <clears throat> When, the vessels, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, and the bull is a sort of Spanish and masculine. Yeah. But uh, what he is during the course of these three eleven lithographs, mm. he he basically strips and strips okay. and redraws, yeah. and and it, and in the end, you you we almost have just one line depicting the bull. And I often find that that the people that I work with will if they're if they're doubting their idea or the the thing they're making, they will add more yes. stuff to it. Yeah. And and I think it's so important to, to take away. Marina Bramovich has got a nice line, which is uh, the creative process more and more of less and less, which uh, which I really like. But as I was preparing for this interview and uh, about ornament, I thought, well, I wonder I wonder what Adam thinks about this because because to you, ornament as a thing. Is is is, is plenitude? Is in, is plenitude. You, you quoted James Trilling. who says ornament is decoration in which He's the brilliant. visual pleasure of form significantly outweighs the communicative value of content. Yeah. And it, is is there a sort of? Do we get a bit hung up on meaning? Is there a bit of a tyranny of meaning? Do you think? I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Like, but it does come from a sort of Christian context in terms of this meaning that like. Uh, ornament was instrumentalized in a very particular way um, in in uh, sacral spaces where it was like the you know the word made spatial um, and so they were educational and they all everything had a very specific meaning um, and similarly now it's like ornament is allowed within the sort of modernist dictum or within the sort of like our well-mannered good taste society if it has a specific function again it's like a functional term and function for ornament is meaning. Um, so people literally think it's like a story. So you hear the word narrative and you hear the word story quite a lot. And that's a way of justifying ornament as being something functional, which I think is really not helpful. Especially, I mean, obviously I'm someone who really cares about the emotive, the poetic, the atmospheric, the sensual. These are things which don't really go very well with meaning and story um, in space. So, you know, for instance, if I, I what, something I've noticed is like I go to, uh, I, like all things, I love going to National Trust properties. It's like my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> like, and in the National Trust properties, I notice that you have these wonderful um, volunteers in all the rooms and you've got people going up to them and they always say, what does that mean? Right. You know, and they'll point, they'll point to like some, you know, like some corbels. We're like, what does it mean? And the, the person in the room is always trying to explain it as if it has a meaning. Yeah. And almost always it doesn't. <laughs> and yet they're trying to sort of give it some kind of context. And, and I've noticed that, like, when I produce work, people, st- people come and they do want to know what it means. What's the story? Like, why is it like that? And if you do tell them it's about the impression, um, it can be... You can get quite negative mm. reactions. Like, I remember there was a person at the Sir John Stones Museum who was invigilating. He's sort of, I think he was probably a very, I think he was a very successful barrister or something. He'd retired and he was sort of uh, um, working there, uh, um, volunteering. Um, and he was sort of getting really annoyed at me. Mm. <laughs> He's like, you should explain what each of these objects mean. You have to explain it and you have to write it down. Otherwise, how are we meant to appreciate them? 
Um, and I, I've noticed that this is something that is, it's something which is cultured into people. Like children don't have that. Like children will go and just, they'll just enjoy or yeah. dislike or they'll just react to something. Yeah. Um, and there are quite a few people actually who still have that. Yeah. But I do find that the more educated somebody is, the, the less they have, the more cultured they are to, or educated in a specific way of understanding the arts, the less they're able to do that. The less they can just sort of like take something at face value and enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. Um, so I do think it is a bit of a, it's a tyranny. Yeah. Um, and it stops us appreciating things in many yeah. ways. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, trying, like I would like people to reach a sort of Zen state where they can just switch their minds off and not think about something and just yeah, enjoy it. Isn't it a problem of education or sort of lack of education? In a way? No, it's too much education. Well, but it's, it's the wrong kind of education, yeah. isn't it? The way that we're not, um, we're not... I think this is why a lot of people have trouble with abstract art, if, you know, for want of a better phrase, but um, mm. non-figurative stuff. Yeah. That they they, um, they go and they and they they feel that they need to see, find a narrative that there needs to be some kind of story or it, they need to know what it means. And yeah, if but they, even if they, if they can't get to what it means, then 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 they don't like it. But I find that even people who who do like that stuff a lot of them only like it because they've read lots of theory books. And the theory books basically give them non-figurative, theoretical ways to find meaning and content in them. So even they're not really appreciating it in a, <laughs> on a sort of... You know, I doubt Mondrian was, like, writing, you know, Merleau-Ponty-ish essays about his work. It was mm. very sort of instinctual. Mm. I think the only artists that I've come across where people do genuinely make an effort to approach them in the way that I guess I really enjoy with artwork is Rothko. I think he's Rothko. the only one where yeah. people people try yeah. <laughs> and pe- people respond quite emotionally and maybe to Terrell and well. Terrell as well yeah. yeah no they respond really well because it is they work and, yeah, and you and feel it for some reason there's a context there because of the explanations to the work that allows people to switch their bloody brains off mm. <laughs> for a second yes and Terrell is similar there's a kind of poetic environment that's made by the way the works are framed so that when you go into them it's literally just about the sky <laughs> or just about the light yeah and it's not about anything else it's just yeah. kind of phenomenological yes. aspects of it yes yeah and i mean i think there's you know there's experiential artists that work it's funny as you talk about marina abramovich it's like they, they manage to break you out of this sort of like hyper intellectualized way of appreciating art by physically putting you into an unusual situation mm. um whether with abramovich like kind of telling you to do things and putting you in, an, in a unique space uh, through ritual and ceremony, or it's Olaf Eliasson, and it's kind of spectacular form of like environment that's being made. Um, but I'm I, I'm a visual person. I like static objects, like boring static objects, and I like flat surfaces, um, and I like forms. Um, and so, what I the kind of relationship with art that I really enjoy is the static um, kind of contemplative mode. Um, which requires people to sort of get into it without, like, you know, a Marina Abramovich taking off your shoes and, like, mm. <laughs> going through three ceremonies before you appreciate object. I do like mm. people, or I love just walking into a room and, I don't know, having a, having a kind of brief moment of respite with an object that's, like, really intrinsically, aesthetically pleasing. Form and function, then. Lewis Sullivan, the... Brilliant. American brilliant architect um, and designer uh, said, um, wrote, uh, some people say that he coined the phrase form follows function. 
I think he did in an essay, which I haven't he, read. He wrote, a, yeah, there's, there's a paragraph where he talks about um, uh, how form follows function um, in nature. Mm. And yep. he, he writes quite dogmatically. Form, form must ever follow function, and this is the law, he mm. writes. How do you feel about the relationship between those two things? I mean, I agree things have to have a purpose, but I guess it, you define what your purpose is. You know, and if your purpose is delight or like central stimulation um, or narrative or stories, that's not what I do, but like you, you define what the purpose of an object is. Um, I think with, with Sullivan and particularly in the taller buildings that he did, there was a sort of extremely elegant relationship with structure to ornament. Um, where you have a very, very beautiful elaboration of the structure and or the sort of the, the gravitational forces at play in his buildings, which are accentuated and celebrated by his beautiful ornament, which are also celebrations of the material out of which they're made and the processes of which they're made. And it's just the most sophisticated and unbelievably perfect on every level, kind of like breakdown visually of what a building is in relation to gravity, in relation to the stuff from the earth that it comes from, and in relation to our imagination. Um, And so there I think, like for instance, I look at his buildings, I think clearly the function there is not just like it's an office building. The function is gravity, material, imagination, office building, (laughs) the era that it was built in and how it might embody that. And so function, I think, can be taken in a really stupid way or it can be thought of in a mu- in much broader terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, I guess if if we're talking, it's nice that you referred specifically to Sullivan, because if I think of it in relation to Sullivan, I don't have any problem with it. It's yeah. just how you define what function yeah, is. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So we are here in your apartment where you work, um, which is a beautifully um, clean carpet. <laughs> uh, oh, God, I'm so... Yeah, I have the, to try and keep it that there's, way. The, the, there's no paint or dust. So you you, um, you you work with artisans and craftspeople to execute your concepts. Yes, not yeah. different ones every time normally. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I sort of got, I got an amazing education at the Architectural Association at St. Martin's before that, where, um, you know, while the, while, while the AA is sort of like a wildly avant-garde and creative place, um, it's it's got pretty core arts and crafts um, like way kind of approach to uh, design where you're expected to learn how to make everything and like I had a great time in the workshops like making ceramics making wood making metal uh, all through university and then afterwards as well like I did a year I did a postgrad where we did live projects Um, and I think what that taught me more than anything is like not presume that I can do everything and just really have respect for different professions and different crafts um, and for them and to have like mutual respect so like what I enjoy is working with people who are really great at what they do and having dialogue with them and not learning from them for me to be able to do it but like learning from them in a like mutually respective sort of sense way with a sense of amazement Um, and I love doing that and I get to do that on lots of different projects with people from furniture makers to um, you know, th- there's a 3D printing people, Lee 3D, that I work with um, for ITV, and you know, they, they like it's a craft. It's not just like you click a button and stuff comes out. They're amazing what they do. Similarly with ceramicists, joiners, uh, like, uh, contractors, it, it, it's really really nice to mm. be able to collaborate. Mm. And you, you seem to have a very sort of fond relationship with with materials. You know, with mm. um, uh, with, with ceramics particularly as well, which is, is sort of. Uh, oh, did you see that video of me licking? <laughs> 
I haven't seen the video of you. There's several videos of me uh, licking ceramics. L- licking ceramics, wow. In the dark recesses of the, the, internet. the internet. Yeah. I, maybe I don't need to see those videos. <laughs> to, uh, one, of them is, one of them is to the sound of, you know, um, do you remember those Marks and Spencer adverts of, it's not just a chicken. Right. It's oh, yes. Oakham yeah, Farm, yeah, right. okay. Daisy Jadwick, yeah, yeah, yeah. chicken, and there's like yeah. me licking ceramics to the yeah. to the sound of yeah. that. Yeah, I love, I love, I love materials a lot, and very, and specifically certain materials. So, like, I've got a total love affair with ceramics. Um, I'm crap at making them, but my god, I love, I mm. just love them, and I love mm. to work. I mean, I collect collect ceramics, and I sort of make ceramics, design ceramics, um, but materials have. I guess the way visually, like visual art and mm. visual, you know, ornament, like affects me very bodily. Mm. Similarly, materials are, I, I they're so thrilling. Mm. I mean, just like a beautiful piece of wood or like mm. an amazingly, you know, welded, powder coated piece of steel, mm. and a you know in, incredibly perfectly. Um, you know, thin piece of porcelain with a beautiful glaze that rings when you flick it, mm. like a bell. That mm. they're so viscerally thrilling. Mm. I mean, I literally like get excited deep down inside. Mm. Um, and it's it, it's uh, it's maybe a um, a particular problem of um, the point in time at which we are mm. that a lot of our lives are um, are lived in the in the sort of digital realm. And they were a little bit out of touch with the <laughs> the physical world increasingly. Well, and, and, we? and objects are looked down on. So kind of it's very much like design feels like it's moved beyond the object. Like the object is seen as a negative thing. It's like associated with consumerism and waste, which is quite sad. Because <laughs> it's not like, mm. you know, oh, since the very beginning of human society, objects are really important. Like they're, extern- they're the ways that we externalize our relations. They embody like the what we value in our lives, in our rituals, in our relationships. Um, they're what we accumulate and leave behind. Um, and so, you know, the, I, 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 mean, I was forced to be, like my, a lot of my work was very digital for a very long time because I come from that generation where I had to. Like we, we, we had to work digitally. Like I couldn't make things for a long time. I didn't have clients. Um, but my great love is things. <laughs> So it was very exciting to be able to... And from very early on, I was like trying to make things. like That's that's actually why I ended up using these new fabrication... Te- or they're not new. They were new fabrication technologies, like 3D printing and ceramics. Yeah. It was simply because I was desperate to have yeah. to make things. Yeah. I, I was amazed when we did the ITV project that your your ceramic things had been 3D printed. Because to me, 3D printing was sort of plastic models. Yeah. Um, oh, well, nowadays, it's like you can 3D print anything. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. In terms of materials, like you yeah. can 3D print metal, you can 3D print stone. Right, brilliant. I didn't know Anything that, that you can grind up <laughs> you can 3D and spit print. out a nozzle. Yeah. <laughs> um, or melt. There's an amazing book by um, Mark Miodonic called Stuff Matters. Yeah. Have you come across this no. book? So good. Um, he is a material scientist and he's a brilliant writer. And what he does, he's taken a photo. He, ha, he begins the book with a photograph of him on his roof in Camden, and he's drinking a cup of tea. Uh, he's sitting by a table with a book and a pencil, and each chapter is given over to one of the materials present in the <laughs> photograph. And he talks about 
where it came from, our relationship with it, what it says about us as people. It really is the most wonderful book. It's called Stuff Matters. Um, I, I've been in touch with his agency if you do one of these and um, I'm waiting for an answer. Because I think, I think, and one of the reasons I'm keen to talk to him, a material scientist mm. for a podcast on creativity, is not just because of the creative way he manages to talk about materials, but I think the way we have come to use and explore and discover materials says an extraordinary amount about our creativity as a species. Yeah, and, and, and I think things, if, you know, if we move, it would be great if we could move beyond sort of like compulsive, you know, kind of grotesque consumerism of the sort of 70s and the 80s. And if we can move back to a relationship with objects where the objects are meaningful and there's, there's less of them, but they're more important to us, would be so wonderful. And they're sort of more like the heirloom mm. relationship with objects yeah. that we used to have. I mean, where they speak about the places they've come from, they speak about the designers that made them, they speak about the materials and where the materials have come from. You know, I, re- I was hoping that we moved back to a relationship that sort of had objects in it, but that they were less of them and they were more meaningful, more valuable, they would be retained for longer. And that we would know more about them and we'd know more about the materials, we'd know more about the, uh, the designers. Um, and, and I was specifically thinking of, and this is sort of a fragment of text that I keep coming back to, I should probably go and find it, um, from a book called Zeno of Bruges, um, which is a book about sort of the, the religious wars of the, of the 16th century in Flanders. Um, and there's, there's one scene where the writer takes a room where Zeno is in um, and there's not very much there. It's like there's him, there's his shoes, there's the table, there's the chair, there's the bed, there's the fabric on the bed, there's his clothes, um, there's the glass. And in words, it all starts dissolving. And what she does is she, she takes one by one everything in the room and she takes you back to where it came from. She unravels it. So she unravels the fabric on his back and it goes back to the weaving on the uh, that the woman is sort of like putting together with the different threads and then the threads which then go back to uh, the shearer which then go back to the animal which then but then the and then so then that happens for the shoes which then go back to the dye which then goes back to the dyer which then goes back to the hide which then goes back to the animal which was then murdered which then goes back to the blood which was then goes um and what happens is it all in the end just turns back in a little bit like, you know, Jenny Mitchell talks about st- we're all just stardust. Yeah. It all just goes back to the, the ground. And she, it's amazing. It's a little bit like the Matrix, you know, where everything sort of just dissolves into numbers. Yeah. But she does this in the most sophisticated and beautiful way through, through these objects in the room and the materials. And everything just dissolves back through the processes of their making, right. back to where they came from and just yeah. all turn back into nature. And it's the most powerful scene scene chapter yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's clear as you can see it's clearly left me with a very very strong feeling about it and and like effectively when I look at objects uh, that are meaningful to me um, it's the same sort of thing like they they unravel right they all have, they mm. have layers to it like that way I just described the Louis Sullivan building mm. right the, the different elements that, yeah. that work together to make this exquisite objects similarly with with actual objects and not buildings there's the design there's the ornament there's the material there's the process and you can dissolve that all back and it can it can go back to where they came from um but it's all embedded in this one thing which is a little bit like you know they say uh wind glass is liquid but it's just a very slow moving liquid so it's kind of like a liquid frozen in time yeah 
just that runs at a different pace. And an object is the same thing. It's like a, it's like a series of it's not really stories, but like embedded knowledge and embedded histories, which are frozen in time, which one day will again dissipate and go back to become a flow of different other stories and other objects or animals or whatever when we're not here anymore. So it's kind of that objects are frozen moments of history. Um, and that, that through materials. And that's kind of like, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's amazing for me. Like, I just, that's why I find these things so amazing. Mm. Um, and why I do find it slightly traumatic when, you know, I do see people like buying things and throwing them away and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah in, with clothes. So with clothes, I like, I have great difficulty letting go of clothes, which my boyfriend obviously finds annoying and actually to be honest all my friends find annoying so i i get very very attached to clothes for the same reason i get very attached to objects yeah um and like there's this orange jacket that i had and i've had it for like 17 years and it's been repaired so many times and it's like i now need to repair the shoulders again and it's just all it's all patched up but i just can't let i can't let go because it's again it's about this thing it's not just a jacket (laughs) yeah it's me. It's my story. It's the story of where it came from. It's like a material which has in, has sort of accrued so much to it, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. So so objects are like their materials. The objects themselves are very very meaningful for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's an example that I always give to people. Like uh, as human beings, we that's how we relate to objects. Like even if it's sort of been um, kind of like. Uh, distorted uh, for a long period through consumerism, we naturally do externalize ourselves through the objects that we make. And, you know, if we make our objects, we naturally do ornament them um, to sort of externalize ourselves through those those ornaments. Um, and an example that I give is that if you go to the living room, if you've ever been to the living room of someone who's recently deceased, uh, if, if you didn't know them, um, particularly if you didn't know them, it's a very powerful experience because no matter what people do, they embody themselves in their space. Mm. So if you go there, just the messiness, the cleanness, the type of objects that are selected, the type of photos and the way that they're organized, uh, the things on the wall, type of fabrics, speaks huge amounts about the personality of the person. And it also as, turns them as a human, as a person, as a com- complex figure running through time, accruing history and meaning, turns them into an atmosphere. It's a little bit why, you know, why it's so important uh, for some museums to acquire an artist's studio as it was when they died, because that's what it does. But people do that anyway. Like That's yeah. what normal people do that with their living rooms, because yeah. we externalise ourselves through objects. It's just, yes. you can curate that, or you can cultivate, you can cultivate, yeah. curate, sorry. That word is like, a, we're not meant to use that word anymore, because it was, it was everywhere for a while, wasn't it? Yeah. We cultivate it, we can cultivate it. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting way of seeing things, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's absolutely true um, that even if somebody lived in a house that was uh, just sort of ikea furniture and, and bog standard regular stuff it's the 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 little details they 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 sort of they uh the the curve on the seat where they used to sit becomes incredibly evocative doesn't it mm. and even if there's if there's literally nothing there'll be something that because there's nothing stands out all the more yeah um it's like in minimalism all that happens is all that minimalism does in design is it it turns moments that otherwise wouldn't be ornamental it turns them into ornaments because mm. we need something to reflect mm. upon so there's always always something to mm. reflect upon in mm. a space mm. let's let's sort of move to the end of our conversation now as the as, as the um, the sun goes down over regent's park um william eggleston the photographer mm. um an amazing man uh, photographed in color at a time when uh 
it was thought that art photography and, and sophisticated Fine. photography had to be black and white. I think you'd, <laughs> I think you'd like his work. But uh, there's a brilliant quote um, from him. He said, I'm at war with the obvious. And I thought it was so nice. Uh, and I was thinking That's about quite you. a great quote. Yeah, and I, I was thinking, you're, you're, you're sort of at war with austerity, in a way, aren't you? If I could... Um, yeah. Take it back to... Yeah. I mean, at war maybe sounds a bit belligerent, but... Um, I just, I'm trying to fight my space. I'm trying to fight the right to exist, to be honest. That's the only reason. The reason that it's like I'm not naturally belligerent or confrontational, but like I've had to be. It's like to, uh, to be able to uh, exist confidently and to be able to sort of produce my work, I've had, I've had to become, um, I don't know how to phrase it, like not confrontational, but like I've had to be able to sort of like stand up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> As it were. But yeah, no. Um, un unquestioning and uncritical austerity that frames itself as intellect intelligence i think is what i'm against yeah not in principle so you know that you've got designers who operate in a sort of an austere edited you know just subtractive mode and they're great um they're sort of aware of of the sort of contingency of what they do you know they're not that it's not the only way to design and that the people who don't operate in that way are sort of somehow terrible but then there's plenty of people who do presume that austerity is virtue um and it's not it's a way of it's one way of operating um and you know in a sort of broad um sort of ecology of like design approaches you know they help each other. Like people do need a bit of austerity, and they do need also a bit of exuberance. Um, something quite interesting is like people who go to Japan get get a bit confused because you know they're, they're fed this sort of idea on the one hand of Zen sort of peacefulness and minimalism and sort of like obsessive perfection, which there is. You know, there's plenty of that. But then also they're also you know there's that other side of like manga and anime and like mess and like you know, young girls dressed as, like, dolls and yeah. cosplay and yeah. just mess, 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 mess and craziness, craziness, yeah. craziness and, like, you know, Studio Ghibli and, like, yes. wraiths and spirits and just the opposite of Zen. But actually, the, those two sides of Japanese society need each other because the moments of repose and the moments of introspection and quietness um, work brilliantly pretty much only against the madness of all of those other aspects yeah. of Japanese society and they sort of need each other it's like two sides of the same coin um, and in many ways like I you know, I do have to stand up I have to stand up for my sort of myself and sort of fight my corner but I deeply appreciate other ways of working mm. yeah um, it would just be nice Maybe. if there was respect all round yeah it would be too simplistic to say that <laughs> you are just about ornament and well, maybe I am, but I really appreciate people who do other things, and it yeah. would just be nice if there was sort of respect all around. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I do think in these um, austere times, in all kinds of ways, you are um, a wonderful corrective <laughs> to the status quo. Yeah, but it, it's a very similar thing. Like, so the, the actual the the kind of rhetoric of, of austerity, economic austerity that the sort of uh, the conservative government. Uh, won elections with is a very it's a very similar it ties into a very similar sort of thread it's like somehow you are virtuous because you are not spending and the house is in order and you're being good um when actually when you drill down to the fundamentals of it it doesn't necessarily make sense economically yeah. but people buy into the idea of yes. being austere being virtuous yes. <laughs> it's, so puritanical it's not, inheritance it, and it's a, it's it's in many instances a false logic yeah yeah absolutely so um 
the the aim of this podcast, as I mentioned at the outset, is is to inspire people who are listening to to, to maybe get going with their own work mm. um, uh, and to start making whatever um, it is that they choose to make. Um, making is the best thing in the world. <laughs> No. Yeah, yeah, man. I'm, I'm, and I was going to ask you to give them a little word of encouragement because it's not easy, is it? Always this creative process. Um, no, <laughs> but but it's it's like it, it's like the, it's the best thing. I mean, it's like it's not it's not easy, but it's it's a joy. It's always a joy, and like uh, I mean, even if it's a you know, even if it's just like going out and sketching something. Um, just the, the act of making and designing it it's one of the only things that I know that totally transports you out of the everyday um, and it breaks you off from all the rubbish in the world all your worries all of the problems and it puts you into this sort of parallel universe where all that exists is the making and the problems of the making and the logic of that little world of what you're producing and it's a so fantastic because so speaking of Zen it's almost like a Zen state and it's such a joy whether it's literally just a sketch like the world that you get into when you get into when you do that, it's like making a pot. There's a reason that like Britain, we have this wonderful culture of like craft and and uh, hobby, hobby making and poetry writing. As I go, I, I like going to like poetry readings and stuff. This wonderful culture in Britain of like people who like work as accountants and dentists and they're actually amazing poets on the side. Because people in our culture, we recognise how wonderful it is to just make and go into that sort of parallel world um, where you're sort of giving birth to things. Uh, consciously cultivating them creatively you know it's like stroking the dog until it grows up <laughs> um, so yeah I, I just say like every, every day anything that you do whatever kind of making it is I think it's massively fulfilling and it's mentally beneficial um, and maybe it's hard sometimes but actually not not hard in like a, a stressful way like hard in a you know like if you're going to climb a mountain you feel great afterwards way I think it's the same thing it's like yeah. hard in the process but then the, the, the payoff is so fantastic afterwards you've given birth to something brilliant well that's uh, an excellent place for us to finish I think thank you very much indeed Adam for um, uh, chatting to me um, putting up with my questions uh, <laughs> and sitting here so patiently um, as the sun disappeared Oh, yeah, it was behind yeah. me. You got the good view. Yeah, I got the good <laughs> view. Um, brilliant. Right, I will um, call it a day there. There you go. Adam Nathaniel Furman. And you can find out more about Adam and his work at adamnathanielfurman.com. Thank you very much for listening this week. And thank you too if you're one of those people who sent me a message to say how much they've enjoyed a particular episode. These, these little messages sustain me uh, with the ongoing project that is the Wind Thieved Hat. I look very much forward to having you listen next time. Does that sound weird? That sounds a bit weird. But you know what I mean. <laughs> it's been great to have you listening. Thanks a lot. Until next time. Bye-bye.